welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention, and each month I chat with a distinguished injury prevention researcher or practitioner about topics of their interest. Our conversation today is with Professor Frederick Rivara, who's Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine and uh, is also Adjunct Professor Epidemiology the University of Washington's School of Public Health. Dr. Rivara has devoted his career to studying childhood injury and injury prevention. He's conducted seminal research on the effectiveness of bicycle helmets and developed programs to promote helmet use. Most recently, his work has contributed to a better understanding of the role of gun ownership on violence in the home. Many of you will also know his work on long-term disability after traumatic brain injury in children. Hello, Professor Rivara. Hi, how are you, Rod? It's great to get a chance to chat with you again after quite some years, I'm afraid. It has been too many years. So can you tell us a little bit about where you've been for the last uh, 40 odd years and, and how you've got to where you are now and, and what excites you at the moment about your current position? Well, I'm a paediatrician. And I really take my impetus from my research as from my clinical practice. And I really got started with injuries because of my seeing patients in the clinic, in the emergency room, on the wards, the ICU, the head injuries. I actually started um, working on this when I was a National Health Service Corps doctor in Eastern Kentucky, um, middle of the the coal fields in Kentucky, and saw a child there with a severe injury from a motorbike, a, min, a mini bike, a miniature motor motorcycle, and um, then got together with a colleague here in Seattle when I came to Seattle, and um, sort of working on that. I tried to actually get mini bikes banned <laughs> by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which was unsuccessful. But then I started doing research on injuries and really has been my guiding principle all along is what do I see on the wards? What do I see as the problems that people come with and are, are injured with and try to use that? I mean, one of the things I'm well known for is bicycle helmet work. And that really rose from the problems I saw with kids with serious brain injuries from bicycling. You know, I, I sort of still feel like the two most severe injuries that you can get that are hardest to treat are central nervous system injuries, spine and brain, and burns. Those are the two kinds of injuries that are really hard for people to completely recover from. And so that has driven, in terms of the bicycle helmet, really drove me to try to work on prevention of those head injuries related to bicycling. So these problems were really staring at you in the face, weren't they, when you first came across them? It really does. And, and, you know, you're sort of trying to take care of this child. And, and we know for injuries like burns and, and traumatic brain injuries, the best treatment is prevention. And so trying to think about how can we really prevent these injuries from happening in the first place? What are the factors, both in the individual and in the environment? What interventions can we do that are practical, feasible, and that work that would reduce the toll from injuries? How many of your colleagues do you think would look at a medical problem uh, in terms of something like a severe burn, severe injuries, and think of prevention rather than think immediately of what's the next best cure? 
Well, you know, I, I work a lot with um, surgeons here at our trauma center. I work in a major trauma center, Harborview Medical Center. And I work with a very terrific group of surgeons, some of the leaders in, in trauma care in the, in the world, frankly. And they do think a lot about prevention. Um, for example, I, I, last month, the chief of surgery here at Harborview held a conference in Chicago, gathering 45 well, people from 45 different organizations to come together and talk about prevention of firearm injuries. Right. So they see these severe injuries and they're frustrated, like I am as a pediatrician, mm-hmm. with these problems and want to try to prevent them as well. So I certainly think that there are people that think beyond, well, how do I patch this individual up and send them out? But how can we prevent these injuries from happening? Could you talk a bit about the, the leadership quality or the the opportunity there for a respected uh, member of the community that the community um, see as a role model um, who actually speaks out for something because some of what you're talking about there is outside the immediate scope of a medical officer or a surgeon it it touches onto other aspects of society yet and it's happened in road safety too hasn't it where the surgeons have stood up made a call and uh, brought uh, a groundswell of public opinion with them. I think that's really true. I think that we as as physicians really have um, some authority when we speak about injuries and we speak about how we want to prevent those problems. I think we're credible messengers for that. We're not credible messengers for a lot of other things, but I think for injury prevention, we are credible messengers. And speaking out about it is, I think, in some ways, our duty. Um, you know, we we can certainly work behind the scenes. And I think it's important to balance the research we have with our advocacy. But I don't think that just publishing research in a journal like injury prevention is enough. I think we have to also be advocates to turn it into action and policy change. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that comment, Fred. And what strikes me about your work is that you haven't been a pure injury preventionist. You've actually been a, a health practitioner and a public health uh, implementer, you've been a, a scientist, you've been an epidemiologist, you've set up research institutes, and injury has benefited as a result. Well, I, I think that one of the keys that we all depend upon is data and trying to understand what's the nature of the problem and who's at greatest risk of having an outcome, whether it be injury or some illness. Um, trying to use the data to, to point us in the right direction of where we might try to intervene here. And then it's really trying to figure out what might be the best way to prevent something. You know, for example, with the bicycle injuries, we decided it wasn't going to be very effective to try to make kids better bicycle riders. That really wasn't where we were going to go. Um, And we know trying to get motorists to be better careful drivers is really tough. Um, So instead, we have to think about, well, how can we implement things that would protect people um, and and sort of despite themselves? So we can put helmets on kids, and even if they're not a safe driver, the helmet will protect them. Um, We can put seatbelts in cars and airbags. um, You know, and and I think the thing that's unique about injuries is, is that it, I think, lends itself to interventions like that much more than do other kinds of problems. Um, So I think we are in a, I I think, a wonderful area of research and intervention where we can actually make a difference in what happens to people. 
You know, it's one of the reasons I'm a pediatrician is I feel like I can make a bigger difference with a young child than I can with somebody my age in terms of changing their health behavior. Right. So what do you think that uh, given that, and you've, you've identified a couple of key areas and you, a couple of key challenges you've had, one of which was uh, around motorcycles. Have you had any other major challenges that you've taken on and struggled with over the period of your career? Well, I think the one of the biggest problems has been firearm injuries in the United States. You know, it's a national disgrace. In, in 2021, we had nearly 48,000 people die from firearm injuries. Um, there are an estimated 400 million guns in the United States, and we certainly lead the world in in that. I think we're you know, we're we're above Yemen, which is second in terms of the number of guns per population. So it's a national embarrassment, and it's it's difficult to do research in this area um, because of that many guns, and because we have the Second Amendment it's interpreted by our Supreme Court as um, allowing people to have firearms in their homes. And I, and I respect that. I mean, that's, that's the way it is. Um, but it's really difficult to do research in that area because of all of this. And the other second thing is that it's a very highly politicized problem. And um, for over 20 years, um, Congress basically forbid federal agencies um, from doing firearm-related research. They took away the money for that. Um, and that was partly related to the research that I did with Arthur Kellerman on looking at the risk of, of firearms in the home and risk of violent death. Fortunately, um, things are much improved, and there has now been federal funding, both from the CDC and the NIH for firearm research, as well as some philanthropy, um, National Collaborative for Gun Violence Research. And the number of researchers working in this field has just blossomed. There's going to be a, a conference in Washington, D.C. at the end of November, um, and they're expected to have 700 people attend it. Mm firearm-related research. Um, so that's really a tremendous change. But it's still really difficult to, to um, make a huge dent in the, in the firearm injury problem. You know, I, we, there's a lot of research going on, and I think it's much of it is very good research. I think it does make a difference. Um, but I think it's making a difference around the edges. It doesn't take away the problem that there is this very large access to firearms in the United States, particularly by by those who might wish to harm others um, as well as harm themselves. And um, it's really hard to completely control that. Despite the increase in research in the last five years, firearm death rates have actually gone up. Yeah. Can I take that point and then, then really delve into it? Because it yeah. seems to me there's something for injury prevention there. You've talked about... Um, motor cars, trying to make motor cars safer, uh, guns. And then I think if you look at the other big areas of, of major trauma and death, mortality, that's probably suicide, which is a complex challenge as well. Um, and perhaps prescription uh, opioids. Uh, right. These these big challenges uh, don't seem to fit the classic um, bike helmet model to me. Um, right. It's very very hard to take a car away from a society. It's probably a little bit easier to make it safer. Um, is, is this something which injury prevention has struggled with, or have we understood the challenges? Have we have we taken the easy road and just missed these big ones, or what do you think is going on here? Well, in the United States, at least, um, 
Half the suicides are committed with firearms. Conversely, in the United States as a whole, 60% of firearm deaths are suicides. I think we are focused appropriately now on the issue of lethal means. We know if you try to take your life with a firearm, you're going to die 90% of the time. Versus if you take a overdose to kill yourself, you die 2% of the time. So there's been a lot of focus on trying to restrict access to lethal means. And I think that there has been some progress there on that in terms of different kinds of laws, for example, the extremist protection laws. Um, I think with suicide, the problem there is that there are still no great ways to screen for or identify people at risk of suicide. I mean, we are making some headways there. We know that most people that commit suicide have had contact with the medical professional in the last six months to a year. Um, but if you talk to psychiatrists in the United States, they'll say it's really tough to screen for suicides. I mean, the VA system, the United States, the Veterans Health Administration in the United States has really worked extremely hard to decrease suicides among veterans. And yet it's not been all that successful. Um, and so that's a, a really a tough problem. The opioids, um, you know, that's changed over time. Um, when it first began, it was prescription opioids, but now they account for a minority of the opioid deaths. That most of the deaths are happening from synthetic opioids like, like fentanyl, which are illegally um, bought and sold. Um, and unfortunately, that epidemic doesn't yet show any signs of leveling off. It continues to rise. It continues to be a, a huge problem there. And I, I, I don't know that we in the injury field have any good solutions to reducing the illegal use of, of drugs like fentanyl. Um, you know, there was a, in the United States, there was a crack cocaine epidemic in the late 80s, early 90s. It was accompanied by a very high spike in firearm homicides. Um, and it went away for reasons that are not totally clear, but probably changes in policing, um, changes in the drug markets, um, those sorts of things. What's interesting is that, that the rise in the opioid um, deaths has not been accompanied by an increase in homicides in those states where, or those areas where the opioid rates are the highest. And no one quite understands why that's so. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting, interesting issue to, to look at. Yeah. So with reference to your need for data question, do you think we have enough data in that uh, problem to actually understand it well or, or not? I, I don't think so. I think that the, mm. the data we have is, is really kind of isolated data, you know, isolated data on who may die from opioid poisoning, but I don't know that we have data that links back to all of their healthcare utilization yeah. Yeah. or other factors that are associated with it. We're very poor on linking data in this country between across, across, across sectors. So we're very poor on linking health data, for example, with criminal justice mm -hmm. data. We don't really do a very good job of that. And I think if we did that, and we've done that in some studies, there's a lot of richness obtained in, in those kind of linkages. Yes, we've long had this challenge. I remember when I was first starting around measuring exposure in, in an environment where we don't really know how much of a particular risk or, or injury hazard people are actually experiencing to draw conclusions. And some of that linked data will get you some of that uh, exposure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it gets back to the, the firearm problem, you know, in the motor vehicles, we have mm. um, 
great data on motor vehicle crashes. We have data on who owns a, a car, what kind of car they own. Um, and, and we can track that. For firearms, there's no data on the, who actually owns a firearm in the United States except through surveys. Hmm. So we can't go back for those who are who have died from a suicide. Me as a researcher don't have any information on whether or not that person had bought a gun and when they bought a gun. Right. So if we were, I'm sure everyone will be aware of your Harborview Medical Center injury research um, activities. You've had an injury center there or since beginning of modern injury prevention almost. It's um, 1985. 1985. I can imagine there'd be many times where you've sat in a desk and a person straight off the um, undergraduate training has come to you and said, I want to do something in injury. Where do I start? Um, what would you say to that person tomorrow when they come in? What I mean, what's what's out there at the moment still to be explored? I, I, no, I don't, we hardly know it all. Um, I think sort of starts with what this conversation started with, which is, you know, what's your experience, what's your passion, and try to understand um, what what interests you and would turn you on to spend a few years investigating particular problems. I think that that's really number one. Number two is, is you know, look at the literature. Um, you know, doing a PubMed search is now pretty easy. Um, you can do it in your, you know, from your home and try to understand what's been done before and try to read it carefully to understand what would be the next logical um, research project to do. Um, not Try not to replicate it, but what's the next research project that really would move things forward? Um, what data sources are available out there for you to use to, to do something like that? Or do you have to go out and collect your own data? But I think there's lots and lots of problems there that are so tough. I mean, we talked about burns. Um, you know, in, in kids, most burns that we see in the hospital are skull burns, from hot tea, hot coffee, hot soup. Um, we haven't really, you know, my colleague Ken Feldman many years ago um, solved the problem of hot tap water burns by lowering the temperature of water heaters. Um, but we still haven't figured out how to really prevent those hot skull burns in kids, and they happen every day. Um, so that's a really important important thing there. Um, pedestrian injuries, I did some work on pedestrian injuries. And, you know, we, we know that it's really, you shouldn't trust a eight-year-old across the street safely. If you try to train them, you really can't trust them. So how do we work with our traffic engineers to make cities safer for kids to walk? Um, you know, we you can look at places like Sweden, which has done a good job of making sure that kids can walk to school without crossing a major arterial. I don't think we've done that very well here in the United States. So I think pedestrian injury still remains a, a sizable problem. I think it's less of a problem than it used to be because, frankly, less kids walk to school. You know, the parents mm -hmm. drop them off, less kids bicycle to school. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons that the pedestrian injury rate has, has decreased is primarily because there's less walking and biking to school. Um, you know, I, I think that um, one of the areas that I think needs a lot of work is um, injuries in older adults. We know that those can be life-changing or life-ending. An older adult that falls and gets hurt ends up in a nursing home, and then the likelihood of them getting out of a nursing home is, is pretty low. Um, so, and we know that trauma care in older adults is tough. Um, we, we showed that working in trauma centers 
mean, here for trauma centers really helps people under the age of 55, but over the age of 55, whether you treat in a trauma center or a community hospital doesn't seem to make that much difference. So we need to get better on how do we care for people that have a lot of comorbidities. Um, so I think there's lots and lots of questions out there that really can be asked and answered. Um, we need to do a better job of triaging people to the right care making sure that the, the resources of like a level one trauma center are appropriately used um, and that the right people come to the, to the right hospital for their care. That's one of the um, tremendous, um, uh, I guess, contributions trauma centers have made, haven't they? In understanding this issue of right time, right place, um, right care, and it extends beyond the trauma center. Yes. You know, and I think that's again, due to the surgeons, the surgeons, mm -hmm. Yeah, the surgeons are really good at looking at that, looking at their results and, and um, developing systems to try to take care of, of trauma patients the best way possible. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been, I think they've been extraordinarily successful. Yeah, talking of coincidences, the, if you look at the, uh, the, the decrease in road crash deaths at a particular point in time when we were doing both trauma care improvements and we were doing motor car improvements and the tussle between the various parts of the injury prevention world is to he's claimed the greatest credit for that uh, massive reduction in, in road crash death. Yeah. and we know it's it's both you know it's we both, know it's yeah. both safer roads and safer yeah. cars and, and improved yeah. trauma care but the other point you made there about improved trauma care and the, and the triaging process uh it does shift a little bit outside the trauma centre, doesn't it? That the ideas were created inside the trauma centre, but if you manage to get the right care, the right time to the various residential aged care facilities, uh, and you manage to to treat on site or whatever happens to be, then you decrease the injury outcomes as a consequence. You've got quite a complex um, sort of scientific way of understanding uh, injury in the world, and that trauma centres, I think, produced a, a great impetus for that scientific approach. Right, and you know where you, you know where all of this began is really in the in the military. Mm -hmm. It's really unfortunately we've learned um, through wars about how to best take care of seriously injured patients. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I, there was a National Academy of Medicine report a few years ago about trauma care, and our goal should be zero trauma deaths, and it's a combination of injury prevention as well as, as terrific trauma care. Yes. That's what they yeah. try to achieve in the military. So the falls question intrigued me a little bit. You, you referenced that. Not a lot of people I talk to now um, talk about falls prevention, but if you look at the, uh, the the burden of falls injury, it's huge, isn't it? And it's, and it's certainly the people looking after aged care facilities are very aware of it, but it seems to have slipped off into geriatric care, um, yeah. physician's yeah. care. Uh, yeah, you know, a number of years ago, you probably remember, Rod, that, that people were looking at like hip protectors to try to prevent hip fractures in individuals who fell. Haven't seen, seen any real work done on that in many years. I think we tried for a while looking at shoe wear because of, of the people that tend to wear slippers in the house and trip and fall. Um, I think that from what I can see now, a lot of the attention is really on medication management, trying to, you know, many older adults are on you know 10 medications and trying to get rid of those are really not necessary and try to prevent the risk of falls that way but i think there's still a tremendous amount of work that can be be done on on fall mm. prevention um mm. and particularly you know, whether people are living in care facilities or at homes um there there really is a huge need and we all know that with an aging population 
that problem is is not going to go away unless we really figure out some better interventions that we currently have. Hmm. So I'm going to, in this last few minutes, draw on your experience now as a as a senior academic and, and thinker in an area which we're calling a field, although as we've mentioned a few times in the past that it tends to fragment into component parts and many of those component parts then work in, in isolation. Do you think there's a value in trying to come up with a research priorities or a consensus view? Or do you think the scientific world works better with let a thousand flowers bloom, let a whole lot of individual enthusiasts carry on with what they're excited about? Well, the CDC here in the United States has developed some injury priorities, and I think that it uses them to guide the the um, grants that they fund for that. I, I think that um, it is useful, um, particularly as we talked earlier, when when people are new to a field, trying to help them understand what are the right priorities or what are the right problems to go into. And I think that you know, right here, people like you and I um, coming together and, and trying to think about what are the areas that we need to really work more on, I think can help guide those new investigators, young investigators. So I do think that there is utility in doing that. Um, you know, and I, I think various groups have done that. They've been done for firearm injuries. Um, and I think the CDC has done it in general. I think that more of it could be done, though. Um, I haven't seen anything from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, for example, or other um, road traffic organizations to say these are the areas that we really need more research on to help reduce uh, motor vehicle crash fatalities and injuries. So I, I do think it would be useful to, to do that. Mm. Well, thank you very much for that uh, opportunity to uh, just chat about uh, your experience, Fred. Thanks very much for, for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Our conversation today has been with Professor Fred Rivara from the University of Washington. For those of you wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed, I invite you to read Professor Rivara's articles in the Injury Prevention Journal. And these can be found by visiting the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. Remember, you can download Injury Prevention podcasts on the first Thursday of each month from your favourite platform or app. <laughs>